Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. There may be few more important discourses for the public than how we make our food and what goes into its production. After all, as the old adage says, we are what we eat. Yet a slew of laws since the 1990s lobbied by the agricultural industry has aimed to limit our speech and access to information to be able to thoroughly discuss what goes into our food and how it is made, including its associated public health, environmental and animal impacts. In the 1990s, 13 states, including Georgia, Alabama, Texas and North Dakota, enacted versions of agricultural disparagement statutes that made it easier for agricultural producers to sue and obtain higher damages from people that criticized their perishable produce. Often termed meat libel or veggie libel laws, these laws lowered the standing requirement, lowered the mens rea requirement to simply negligence, with Alabama imposing even strict liability, increased the damages obtainable, lowered the falsity culpability to simply asserting claims that were deemed to be scientifically unreliable, and reversed the burden of proof by imposing the burden on the defendants to show the truth of their claim. These statutes violate the First Amendment in a number of ways, including that due to the public importance of this issue, actual malice is required, and that they are content-based restrictions directed to the speaker's viewpoint and importantly, directed to what is arguably political speech. There has been little litigation, and unfortunately the case law that has occurred has skirted the constitutional issues, so they remain on the books. But do they chill speech? Well, say you wanted to publish one scientific study on the dangers of a particular pesticide. Well, this may run afoul of these statutes, because one such study may not be deemed to be scientifically reliable, and you would have the burden of proving its truth. Even though the law is likely facially unconstitutional, do you want to risk the resources necessary to go against an agricultural giant or a group of producers? And even this chilling of speech was not enough for the industry. The second generation of what have been termed ag-gag laws don't even pretend to be directed at false speech. These laws aim to prevent a disclosure of evidence from undercover investigations that reveal the truth of how our food is made. They target whistleblowing. Animal and environmental rights activists that go undercover to reveal what may be disturbing, dangerous and or illegal activity at factory farms may go to prison for this disclosure. Undercover reporting is instrumental in ensuring that our food is safe, that the conditions of the animals in factory farms are humane and to limit the impact of these operations on our environment because concentrated animal feeding operations where the majority of meat and animal products derived from, have successfully lobbied our legislatures to be essentially deregulated, including being exempted from numerous environmental regulations, which has led to their disturbing and disastrous environmental impact. These second-generation ag-gag laws, which aim to gag free and true speech, are again facially unconstitutional. The Animal Legal Defense Fund has litigated a number of these to vindicate our First Amendment rights in addition to other laws, such as food censorship laws that aim to curb our speech with respect to our food. I spoke about these new ag-ag laws, food censorship laws, the conditions of CAFOs and more with Christina Stella, a senior attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund and adjunct professor of law at the University of San Francisco Law School. Welcome to Gravity, Christina. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. May you please tell our audience more about the Animal Legal Defense Fund's litigation and advocacy work? Sure. So the Animal Legal Defense Fund is an organization that was founded in 1979 
Our mission is to uh, protect the lives and advance the interests of animals through the legal system. And so we do that in kind of a number of ways that are all focused around uh, legal advocacy. So we have a civil litigation program. We have a criminal justice program that mostly provides support to support and resources to prosecutors who are uh, tasked with prosecuting crimes of animal cruelty. We also have an animal law program that focuses on getting young folks and um, academics into uh, the profession and to really appreciate and expand this world of animal law. And then we have a legislative affairs program, which just like it sounds, works on uh, legislation and policy to advance um, animal status and protections under the law. And so we have a few um, types of kind of issue areas that we focus our work around. So we work on farmed animals, captive animals, animals in research, companion animals, and wild animals. And so all of our kind of work is really, like I said, centered around uh, legal advocacy in all forms with the goal of um, advancing the legal status and protections for animals under the law. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I'd like first to um, discuss various laws that have been lobbied by the agricultural industry that likely violate the First Amendment. The first string of laws I'd like to discuss that violate the right to free speech, which includes commercial speech, are what have been termed food censorship laws, which have been enacted in a number of states, including North Dakota, Mississippi, and Arkansas. You are currently challenging the Arkansas law in court, which prohibits animal product and rice alternatives from using the product alternative in the name of their product. For instance, hemp milk will run afoul of the law and have to resort to something like hemp water, which seems a little less appetizing, right? It's like, do you want oat milk in your smoothie or do you want oat water? And that's possibly the likely intention of the law. Now, what is the legislative history of these laws and what are the main contentions in your current case? Sure. And so I should clarify, we're actually challenging the laws in both Missouri and in Arkansas. So I'll touch on um, both of those. And so I should say too, at the outset, like ostensibly, these laws are being passed to protect consumers from what the legislators uh, are said to believe is misleading kind of claims and advertising about the food. But we can tell from legislative history that that's really a pretense in some cases or in other cases, just kind of a post hoc justification for passing the law just targeted at these types of products. And so the legislative history really kind of shows the true purpose. Um, so I'm very happy to highlight it here. Um, so in Missouri, the law criminalizes truthful speech by prohibiting, quote, misrepresenting a product as meat if the product isn't derived from livestock or poultry. And so the law, uh, a, a violation of the law carries a penalty of incarceration up to a year, as well as a fine of up to $1,000. So this is a criminal law with really um, hefty penalties. And this statute went into effect in August of 2018. So the Missouri Cattlemen's Association actually proposed this law's initial language and presented it to Senator Sandy Crawford um, to introduce into the state legislature. So Senator Crawford and two of her co-sponsors, Representative Jeff Knight and Representative Warren Love, uh, all have extensive ties to the animal agriculture industry. Senator Crawford has publicly acknowledged that she championed the law because, quote, we wanted to protect our cattlemen in Missouri and protect our beef brand. So pretty clear there, the purpose of the law. Um, when discussing the perceived need for the statute to be enacted, Representative Knight, one of the other co-sponsors, 
publicly stated, quote, we're just trying to protect our product. And then Senator Munslinger, who was the sponsor of the omnibus uh, agriculture bill that the censorship law eventually made its way into, um, is also a member of the Missouri Cattlemen's Association and himself has ties to the animal agriculture industry. So it's really clear that the aim of Missouri's law is to protect the animal agriculture industry in that state from competition from plant-based meat and clean meat producers. It was very clearly introduced and enacted with the intent of um, commercially harming the plant-based meat and clean meat industries and restricting speech by plant-based meat and clean meat producers in order to protect the conventional meat industry from competition. And then in Arkansas, we saw a similar thing. So Arkansas law uh, is a civil law, but it prohibits uh, purveyors of plant or cell-based meats from using the word meat, which is the same as Missouri's law, uh, but also related terms like beef, pork, roast, sausage, uh, so other kind of typical, you know, meat descriptors. Um, so that act, for example, would prohibit uh, marketing things like smoked ham style plant-based deli slices or plant-based jumbo hot dogs, which are actual claims from the plaintiff in that, or claims that the plaintiff in that case, which is Tofurky, uh, makes on their product. Um, so each violation of the act would uh, include each package for a plant or cell-based meat product, and it's punishable by a civil penalty of up to $1,000. So even though this law is only civil, and uh, you know, doesn't carry the threat of criminal prosecution, the fact that each individual package is considered a violation means that there's potential for very hefty fines for uh, plant and, and uh, clean meat producers. And so this act went into effect uh, in July of this year. So one of the act's uh, proponents in the Arkansas General Assembly stated in a committee hearing that its purpose, quote, is to protect agricultural producers in the state and he also said, quote, I want my ribeye steak to have been walking around on four feet at one time or another. <laughs> um, proponents also, yeah, <laughs> pretty clear. Um, and proponents of that act also indicated that it was designed to provoke federal regulation on this issue by making it more difficult for companies to comply with, you know, different requirements in different states. So again, it's pretty obvious that, you know, the purpose of these laws uh, from their legislative history is really to protect in-state animal, produ animal product uh, producers and not really to protect consumers. So just to, to unpack the ostensible reason, the legislature is concerned that people buying plant-based sausage are going to be confused that there's meat in that sausage? Right, that's what they say. They say that it's not clear to a consumer whether these products are plant-based or, or, you know, traditional meat products, um, which obviously, you know, glosses over the fact that a lot of plant-based producers are not at all trying to, you know, confuse their products with true meat products. You know, they're catering to consumers who are looking for um, kind of a, a meat-like experience, but with a plant-based product. And so plant-based uh, consumers of plant-based products are, you know, not at all confused by this advertising. And that's been made clear by the fact that even before these laws were enacted, uh, you know, the, the state attorneys general were not, 
you know, overrun with complaints about consumer confusion. You know, they didn't have any consumer confusion cases or anything like that. So it seems pretty clear when you look at, um, you know, the legislative history combined with the actual, you know, history of, of consumer complaints in the state and just the, the growth of this, of this industry that consumers are not confused by these labels and there's no need to, you know, restrict First Amendment protected speech in order to protect consumers. It's really just uh, protecting uh, the animal agriculture industry. It seems that actually not being able to use the product alternative, so if people are not looking for dairy milk for whatever reason and they want hemp milk or oat milk or soy milk, it's actually less descriptive Right. And, and, and with respect to meat, too, you're looking for meat alternatives. So what is a meat alternative? It's more confusing to the consumer if you can't use the term sausage, say, I mean, or, or meat. What are you going to call a plant based sausage if you can't call it a plant? You know, it's going mm-hmm. to be utterly confusing. It's just a plant dough that you can. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. Right. I mean, it's just it, it's right. preposterous. It's right. a logical fallacy. I wonder whether um, one reason for this is the advent, and I don't know how, how close we are, maybe it's, you know, five years, 10 years, maybe even 20 years, but there's going to be cell-based meat potentially on the market. And, right. th- and this meat won't lead to any animals being held captive or killed at all. Is going to apparently look like meat. It's going to taste like meat. It's going to have the same molecular structure as meat. It's just not going to have any of the environmental um, impact of meat currently. Um, I wonder whether they're looking towards that and worried that that's going to be the end of their industry. Yes, I think that's definitely the case. I think it's very clear, again, from the legislative history and just from, you know, what we've been seeing nationwide in the animal agriculture industry, that they're very concerned with wanting to protect their market share. And so I do think absolutely they have an eye towards that when they are passing these laws. So what are the main contentions in the two cases that are currently pending with respect to food censorship laws? So there are two main claims in both of the cases. So under the First Amendment, commercial speech obviously is protected and commercial commercial speech includes words on labeling and in marketing materials. And so our uh, case claims that the statute restricts truthful commercial speech, uh, which obviously is a violation of the First Amendment. Um, We also claim that the statute is content-based, meaning that it regulates the actual content of the terms and the labels, not just, you know, font size or where on the label certain words can be used or things like that. It actually is trying to get at, you know, the words uh, themselves, which is not permissible under the First Amendment. We also allege that the laws are overbroad. So they, you know, regulate or restrict more speech than is actually necessary even if the true, uh, you know, purpose of the statute were to prevent consumer deception, this would still be, you know, a, an overbroad means of kind of serving that purpose or getting at that purpose. Um, and then we also allege that the laws violate the dormant, dormant commerce clause. Uh, so the laws, as I kind of explained through legislative history, really aim to put plant-based producers at a disadvantage in states where these laws are passed. Um, And that's in order to protect the local economic interests or the local meat industries 
from interstate competition. So it really excessively burdens interstate commerce in a way that violates the Constitution. I'd like now to move to ag-gag laws. They also burden the Constitution mm-hmm. quite substantially for a number of reasons. Firstly, we rely on undercover reporting and whistleblowers to expose the harms of industry, including but not limited to product defects, labor conditions, and environmental pollution. It's a vital public interest to understand how our food is made and what impact the making of our food has on our environment and our health. Upton Sinclair went undercover in the packing yards in Chicago over 100 years ago and studiously analysed all the deplorable conditions of the workers whose lives were slaughtered with the animals, albeit in a more protracted fashion, the conditions of the animals and the conditions of the meat infected and tainted that ended up being eaten. And the jungle brought substantive change. So did more recent exposés of slaughterhouses and factory farms, including the down cows were being slaughtered and sent to school lunches over a decade ago. It's extremely distressing on a number of levels that big ag has fought in the majority of states to enact laws that criminalise undercover investigations and recording of the conduct of animal enterprises, or what has been aptly termed ag-gag laws. Big ag has pushed these laws in the vast majority of our states. Some have fortunately not succeeded at the legislative level, including in California, New York, and Vermont. Some have been found unconstitutional, such as in Idaho and Utah, but some are still enforceable and others, such as in Iowa, are back in court after having been found unconstitutional with a little bit of tweak to try again to pass constitutional muster and are in renewed litigation with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I'd like to address these laws in detail, but First, I'd like to start with the advent of these laws and the actual and ostensible reasons they're being enacted across the country. So in terms of kind of the current status of these laws across the U.S., um, as you mentioned, you know, different states have passed them at different points and have tried to, you know, propose them and not all of them succeeded. The first uh, law that we consider to be AGAG was passed in 1990 in Kansas. Uh, Additional laws were passed in North Dakota and Montana in 1991. Iowa, Utah, and Missouri passed laws in 2012. Idaho passed their law in 2014. North Carolina passed a law in 2015. Arkansas in 2017. And then, as you mentioned, Iowa passed another law in 2019. Um, So all told, nine states have some version of ag-gag laws, uh, had ag-gag laws on their books at some point. Um, as you mentioned, also in Utah, Idaho, and uh, the first time around in Iowa, those laws were all struck down. We're currently litigating again in Iowa and in Kansas, North Carolina, and Arkansas. So kind of taking out of the count any laws that have been struck down or that we're currently litigating, there are three states left with these laws um, on the books without challenge, which are North Dakota, Montana, and Missouri. Um, And I guess without getting into kind of the full, you know, history of all the laws that have been proposed and not passed or passed by the state legislature, but then vetoed or, you know, all of the kind of long history, it can kind of be summarized to say that, you know, there was this initial little blip of laws like in the early 90s, just these three states, Kansas, North Dakota and Montana, uh, passed their laws. And then there really was no legislative activity until after 2011, when lots of uh, undercover investigations began to be released. And that really corresponds to kind of the advent of, um, of 
technology, really, with, you know, cell phones and smaller cameras and easier ways for undercover investigators to uh, record and then kind of disseminate information. Um, so once we saw, you know, that technology develop, that kind of empowered um, undercover investigators, and then once we saw the results of undercover investigations that really did hurt the bottom line of the agriculture uh, animal agriculture industry or specific, you know, corporations within it, that's when we really saw uh, this kind of legislative trend take off. So starting in 2012 and then, you know, even now up until this year with Iowa passing a- another law. These laws on their face clearly appear to be a prior restraint aimed at a particular content. How do these laws violate the First Amendment? Yes, in a few ways, as you can imagine. Um, so kind of, as I mentioned before, when talking about the, um, the food labeling laws, under the First Amendment, the government can't restrict our speech unless it does it in very specific ways. And it also needs a compelling reason to, uh, to do it. So the government can only regulate the time, manner, or place that speech takes place. So, you know, it can tell you or it can, you know, pass laws that tell you exactly where you can hold a protest, for example. But it can't regulate the subject matter, you know, the content or the viewpoint of that speech. So it can't regulate speech on the basis of whether it expresses, you know, a positive or negative view of a situation, for example. And so it can't, the government can't pass laws that requires authorities to look at the viewpoint of the speaker or the content of the speech to determine uh, whether the law has been violated. So basically, you know, if the authorities have to watch a video or, you know, review the speech itself to find out if it violates the law, then that law is unconstitutional. And so ag-gag laws either restrict or criminalize, depending on the state, uh, pure speech of, of two different types. So the act of making a misrepresentation on an employment application or to gain access to a property is protected speech. And then the act of taking photos and videos once on the property is also protected speech. And so ag-ag laws um, restrict those two types of speech in, in unconstitutional ways. So they're content and viewpoint based because a lot of the laws require that the uh, speaker, quote unquote, the, you know, person either making the misrepresentation on an employment application to gain access to the facility or who is actually, you know, capturing the photos and videos, um, they must have the intent to harm the employer or harm, you know, the business uh, interests of the corporation. Um, And so that, you know, determining if uh, the speaker has that intent really requires a review of the content of the speech and, you know, the viewpoint of the speech, which really goes beyond what the government is allowed to do by just, you know, restricting the time, the manner, or the place in which uh, people engage in speech. Um, And so, you know, luckily we've had success that the courts have held that, you know, under the First Amendment, photos and videos are protected speech, as is the act of recording them. And when an undercover investigator, you know, tells lies or makes misrepresentation in the course of gaining employment or gaining access to a facility, those lies are really harmless because they don't really hurt the listener and they don't help the speaker. So they don't, uh, these are, you know, terms that the courts have used. That's why they're a little (laughs) specific. 
uh, you know, the courts have said that harmless lies are ones that don't quote unquote confer material gain or cause legally cognizable harm. So basically, as long as the lie uh, is kind of meaningless in the eyes of the law, it is a form of protected speech. And so because ag-gag laws prevent speakers from engaging in that protected speech, they are unconstitutional under the First Amendment. And I should also clarify, uh, just to go back one step, the reason why lies in the context of um, undercover investigations are considered to be harmless is because undercover investigators who uh, are seeking employment at um, animal agriculture facilities are, once they gain employment, they do actually perform all of the roles of their job. So even though, you know, they're receiving a paycheck from the company, they have actually earned that paycheck. You know, they go to work every day. They're qualified for the positions that they obtain. They carry out all of the duties required of them. Um, And so they're really not, you know, unduly benefiting from being employed. And, you know, the scope of lies that they might tell in the process of obtaining employment could be something as small as, you know, saying they like the same sports team as the person interviewing them, you know, just as a way of kind of ingratiating themselves with the potential employer, um, you know, to make it seem like they're more, um, you know, relatable. Uh, They might, you know, downplay their education or their, um, you know, training or something like that to make them, you know, stand out less in an application process, Uh, you know, to stand out less in, you know, ways that would lead to them not getting the job. Hopefully they're, you know, standing out in the ways that do lead um, to them being employed. But so that's why, you know, when looking at how undercover investigations um, kind of take place and unfold, the court says that, you know, these very small um, lies that lead to getting a job are harmless because once the job is actually obtained, the, um, you know, employer is getting the benefit of the worker's labor and the worker is getting his or her wages. And so there's really no um, kind of undue burden on the employer or undue gain for the worker. Right. And I think that there is a Supreme Court case on material gain, which would be Mm -hmm. the authority in this instance, and that material gain is something monetary, right? So the worker, you just mentioned the worker is getting paid but they are, um, they're also providing their labor. So the pay goes to their labor. And then the result of the recording, they don't make a recording and expose a legal activity to gain a monetary advantage, right? They're, they're doing it so that they expose a legal activity, dangerous activity, cruel treatment of animals. So I, I don't see any material advantage that they're getting from this lie, which should then be protected. But also, if they're exposing a legal activity, how can that be a justiciable harm to the employer if what they're doing is illegal? Right. Yes, you're exactly right. And you would think that, you know, uh, these corporations would want the public to know how their animals are being treated and what takes place behind closed doors if everything were above board, right? If someone came in and was recording joyful animals, you know, being held and, you know, loved and taken care of, I don't think these corporations would necessarily mind that footage getting out, right? They only mind when it shows something that they don't want the public to see because, you know, hiding that information from the public is what allows these corporations to continue making money. 
off of animals and these practices. Right. There's always an unintended consequence to everyone's actions, right? And, and it seems that the intent of these laws is to put in the shadows, as you just said, to hide what they're doing in concentrated animal feeding operations and so forth, so that, for instance, us omnivores, and I'm part of this category, uh, we, we don't perceive what's happening, right? So Because when you think about it, it is quite, um, you, you need some cognitive dissonance to eat meat, right? It is true. I mean, it, we even use it in our language. It's beef, not a cow. It's pork, not a pig, right? And then to hide it protects their profits. But here, the unintended consequence is the fact that they're trying to hide something makes people suspicious about, yeah. well, <laughs> if you're going to hide it, what really, like, why is it so terrible that you need to hide it? That I think yeah. that actually, ironically, it is doing the exact opposite. If you are doing everything in your power to hide what you're doing, then people might be suspicious that there might be some nefarious activity there that you don't want people to see. Right. And, you know, we were just talking about the legislative history of the labeling laws, and the same is true for ag-ag laws that we see from the legislative history that they had a very specific reason for passing them. And kind of like you're saying, you know, you're making the excellent point that all eaters, obviously meat eaters included, uh, want to and deserve to know how those animals are raised and treated. But the legislative history, you know, the legislators who were passing these laws were really specifically uh, targeting kind of anti-animal agriculture activists. So you can see, uh, let me pull some quotes here. They're really colorful. Um, so in Utah, the legislators who passed the ag-ag law there said that the recordings should be criminal, so recordings of uh, factory farms should be criminalized because they're used, quote, for the advancement of animal rights nationally, which in our industry we find egregious. Um, in Iowa, there was a 2011 investigation at a pork plant that generated significant uh, media coverage of the footage of pigs and piglets being abused. And so the senator in Iowa said, quote, what we're aiming at is stopping these groups that go out and gin up campaigns that they use to raise money by trying to give the agriculture industry a bad name. Uh, in Idaho, legislators compared animal uh, activists to terrorists. They called them, quote unquote, the enemy and said that farmers uh, want to avoid being, quote unquote, persecuted in the court of public opinion. Other legislators have said that uh, these laws are um, uh, sorry, that undercover investigations are conducted by, quote, national propaganda groups who want to change the way agriculture is done. Other legislators referred to animal activists as jack wagons, which I am still not sure what that means. Yeah, I don't um, know what that means. <laughs> as uh, they refer to them as terrorists, quote, the vegetarian mm -hmm. people who are trying to kill the animal industry. Um, and so these laws, you know, just like the the labeling laws are very often written by the industry lobbyists. So like the Idaho Dairymen's Association, for example, wrote Idaho's law, um, or they're influenced by the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC, which I think, you know, a lot of kind of folks in this world are familiar with as, you know, authoring very kind of uh, pro-industry legislation. So it's, it's very clear that these laws are specifically targeted at a kind of set group of actors and actions. 
and that the legislators and, you know, apparently the industry that they're acting on behalf of really are not interested in, you know, public discourse around their products and, you know, transparency and all of the things that a lot of conscientious eaters really value. All right. I mean, it's definitely good evidence for a content-based restriction because what you just quoted tends to show that they're worried about uh, groups that want to pursue and protect animal rights, right? So they're going against a particular content of speech. And we should have a discourse on animal rights, right? One thing I'd like to address now is that there's a condition in some of these laws that once an undercover investigator sees some ill treatment of an animal or something that is illegal, that they have to report it right away. But how does that impact their undercover investigation if they need to show that there's a practice that's encouraged or um, uh, if, it, if not encouraged, that there's a blind eye towards um, such ill treatment or uh, illegal practice. Right. So Missouri is one of the states that has a law with that provision. We call those mandatory reporting provisions. And like you said, they provide that, you know, anyone who witnesses or has evidence of animal cruelty has to turn that evidence over to the proper authorities within a very short amount of time, like 24 or 48 hours. Um, And exactly like you said, part of the power and undercover investigations is showing exactly like you said, that it's not just, you know, a one-off total anomaly when an animal is subjected to violence. Oftentimes it's a, you know, very pervasive systemic problem within a facility, certainly within the industry as a whole, but then also, you know, within a certain facility. And so undercover investigators need to document practices over time, you know, over the course of at minimum several days, but, you know, often much, much longer um, to show that this is a pattern of behavior. And like you said, that the supervisors or the, you know, powers that be within the facility are not stepping in to stop it. The employees who are committing acts of violence against animals are not, you know, punished or, or uh, you know, removed from interacting with animals. Um, or it could show uh, like longer term neglect or things like that, where, you know, if you just are in a facility for one day and you see an animal who is, you know, doesn't look that great or is just off on their own or something like that, you don't necessarily know the cause, but if you can show, you know, that that animal hasn't received any attention or medical treatment for days on end or weeks on end, you know, that's a much more um, kind of powerful case. Um, And so, yes, even though ostensibly it makes sense, I think, to a lot of people intuitively that um, if you, you know, see animal cruelty, you should have to report that to the authorities. In the context of an undercover investigation, it would really undermine the investigation. And very oftentimes, you know, reporting animal cruelty doesn't always result in in action on behalf of that animal. So you could turn it over and the local authorities could say, there's nothing we can do, or we checked in with the facility and they say everything's fine, or maybe they just don't have the resources to prosecute. Um, And in any event, you know, prosecuting one individual actor is really not the solution to the problem of the animal abuse that happens systemically at factory farms. You know, it's really uh, reforming practices that have to happen. And so documenting 
um, practices over a longer period of time, the you know, systemic nature, the pervasiveness of the practices, and then exposing that to the public who can, you know, put pressure on a corporation to reform practices. You know, all of that is a much more powerful tool against, um, against the cruelty that takes place on factory farms than just, you know, get, providing a picture to the, you know, local law offices uh, or law officers, you know, within 24 hours. As an analogy, say you're an undercover police officer in a criminal organization, right? I suppose that if you're only there for a day, you would see some sort of illegal activity, but you wouldn't have enough to develop a prosecution to put all the heads of the criminal organization in jail so that you don't have the criminal organizations continuing anymore. I think I read somewhere that it's like if you were a DA agent and um, you saw a $5 drug bust, you'd have to act on that right away and that would expose you instead of um, waiting for whatever the, the main thing that you need to prosecute is. Wow, that is a great analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not for me, but I forget <laughs> where I read it. So we've been discussing how these laws might violate the First Amendment, but how do these laws operate to violate the 14th Amendment, which is the Equal Protection Clause in our Constitution? So as I was just explaining, you know, the legislative histories very clearly show that these laws were passed to target, you know, specific activity and, on, you know, um, engaged in by specific people. And so obviously, you know, the Equal Protection Clause uh, requires that laws apply, you know, equally to all people and that specific kind of groups can't be singled out and laws apply to them, especially, and the legislature can't have, um, you know, what's called legislative animus when passing laws, you know, just designed to, to target or punish specific people. And so we have claimed in, in our suits with the stronger legislative histories that these laws do violate um, the 14th Amendment. And it's been clear, I believe the court in Utah found that it's very clear that the laws were passed with the legislative animus. And so what we've seen as a result of those uh, early decisions that kind of confirmed, you know, what we were seeing in legislative history, legislatures now keep the legislative histories pretty scant. So they'll say, you know, on the record, different reasons for passing the law and kind of um, not be as candid or transparent about the true purpose of the law, I think in order to kind of um, reduce the likelihood that the law laws can be challenged under the 14th Amendment. So with respect to the animus against animal rights advocates, um, and, and you just mentioned Utah, I believe the first prosecution under these laws in Utah really showed that because the first person to be prosecuted was Amy Mayer, and she was not even on an agricultural facility. She was actually taking a video recording of the mistreatment of cows from a public street. So it, the law didn't even mm -hmm. apply to her, and yet uh, she was the first person prosecuted under it. And it seems that these prosecutions and just having these laws on the books are really there to chill activist speech. So do you think that these laws have chilled speech or if they uh, continue to be on the books that they will chill speech? Do they have this effect? Absolutely. And that's something that we discuss in, in our cases. You know, ALDF as an organization that um, is engaged in some form with undercover investigations, our speech has been chilled and other organizations who conduct investigations, their speech has been chilled. 
Um, and that's part of, you know, the problem. That's part of what makes laws that restrict speech um, unconstitutional is that even before they're enforced, they have this effect of chilling speech. And that alone violates uh, our constitutional rights. So obviously, you know, if you are if you're hailed into court to defend yourself against a, you know, a civil penalty or jail time, even if your conduct is deemed legal at the end of that legal proceeding, you know, the state has kind of already won by just making you, um, you know, go through that process and incur the, you know, expense and the time and, um, you know, kind of the fear that comes with that process. And so obviously just knowing that you could have to go through that process before ultimately being found, um, you know, to not be in violation of a statute, uh, by wanting to avoid that process, you're deterred from engaging in, you know, First Amendment protected speech in the future because you want to avoid that whole process. And so that's certainly the effect that the laws have had on organizations like ALDF and our co-plaintiffs and uh, also on, you know, individual um, people, like you said, like Amy Meyer. Um, so yes, they are absolutely having a chilling effect even before they're enforced. And that's part of the point of these laws. And that's, you know, again, one of our claims and why we're challenging them. Yeah, this, this makes me think of, um, there was a case, uh, where, um, I think the Texas beef producers took Oprah to court under a food disparagement law in the nineties. And, after a few years of litigation, she won. And then she said, free speech rocks, but not everyone has the uh, litigation resources to yeah. um, to go to court. So, yeah, it's, um, it's quite a chilling effect. So it's wonderful that organizations such as the Animal Legal Defense Fund are taking these cases on um, for animals and also for one particular animal, humans because we <laughs> this country is built on the first amendment supposedly so that is very important we're talking about how our food is made which is so vital mm -hmm. to all of us it's what we ingest into our bodies every day and um following on from that i want to discuss uh humane washing cases now um, some people listening to this podcast uh, may eat meat and like me for instance looking at a product that says the animal is humanely treated and that um, the, there are no antibiotics and that everything is organic and so forth, you, we, you pay a premium for this, right? And you choose to pay a premium because you think that it's better for you and better for the environment and better for the animal. You have to rely on that advertising and we have misleading advertising laws. But if no one is doing investigations and if we don't know about this, then really all that's happening is that this systemic mistreatment of animals is continuing and all that's changed is the price and marketing of the product. <laughs> so we're paying mm -hmm. more for the same thing. So I know that um, the Animal Legal Defense Fund has some humane washing cases um, currently pending, including against Tillamook. May you please um, detail more about these cases and um, just humane washing in general? Sure. So, right, as you said, we do have um, a kind of a suite of false advertising and unfair business practices cases that are aimed at stopping companies from, just like you said, profiting off of misleading consumers and making misrepresentations 
about their products. And so uh, each of our cases kind of um, focuses on a different aspect of misrepresentation. Um, so, and I can just give kind of a few examples to highlight those. Um, so the Tillamook case, as you mentioned, you know, for those not familiar, Tillamook is a Oregon-based brand that has really, uh, it's a dairy company, so they make like cheeses and um, other dairy products, I believe. Well, I don't know the whole state of products, but dairy products. Um, and so their brand is really built on this idea that Tillamook products are sourced from, you know, family farmers who have the highest standards of uh, environmental sustainability and, you know, animal welfare, and that when uh, consumers are purchasing these products, they're really supporting those kind of um, those values. And so they have um, a whole spate of advertising. So um, it goes beyond, you know, just their labels. It's really how they represent their entire product. And so it's, I think a lot of consumers do purchase Tillamook products and pay a premium for them on the belief that they're supporting, you know, they're making kind of an ethical choice that's in line with their values when they're buying those products. In reality, Tillamook sources the majority of its milk from um, a dairy CAFO in the desert of Eastern Oregon. That's actually one of the largest, if not the largest dairy CAFOs in the United States. Uh, and we don't believe that that, um, facility, you know, does have the highest standards of animal welfare uh, or, you know, kind of represents like the small scale family farm that Tillamook uh, promotes, <clears throat> excuse me, or, um, uh, you know, leads consumers to believe that it's sourcing its products from. And so we just brought a lawsuit, I believe it was last month or earlier this month, um, under Oregon's um, unfair business practices law kind of challenging that uh, narrative that Tillamook has built to, that has really, you know, built its brand on. Um, and in other cases, we challenge kind of just more, um, late, uh, excuse me, misleading labeling or like names of a product. So we have a case right now against Hormel where we're challenging um, their quote unquote natural choice line of pork products which they would lead you to lead consumers to believe are, you know, kind of raised in a different manner than just the traditional Hormel products. But it turns out that the same pigs who go into the natural line of products are also uh, used to supply spam and all of Hormel's other products. So they're the exact same pigs raised on the exact same capos, treated in the exact same ways as, um, the pigs that are, you know, touted as being more like uh, naturally raised. And so we've challenged that as misleading to consumers as well. And then sometimes we have cases that are more focused on um, uh, kind of depiction. So we had a case against Trader Joe's recently where we challenged their egg carton that depicted, um, it had like a, a graphic, you know, illustration on the front that showed uh, birds outside on grass, like basically a pasture-raised um, egg operation, when in reality, they were sourcing those eggs from CAFOs, where the, the hens who are producing those eggs never see anything or never experience anything like what was depicted on the carton. And so we you know, let Trader Joe's know <laughs> that we were planning on filing suit, um, 
And they did actually change their carton um, to just, you know, say, I guess, more generically eggs without um, depicting what the conditions are like for the hens. And so we kind of approach all of these suits with the philosophy in mind that it's, you know, against the law for uh, corporations to, like you said, profit off of misleading consumers who are willing to pay a premium for products that are produced in line with their ethics and their values. So we're trying to kind of take um, that advantage, that unfair advantage away from those companies. Right, because either they do what they say they're doing, or I guess they have to decrease their price and be truthful about their products. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned CAFO's uh, concentrated animal feeding lots quite a lot, and um, I'd like now to discuss them in some detail. Uh, may you please describe what defines a concentrated animal feeding lot uh, operation or a CAFO and how they're regulated? Technically, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, is the regulatory entity that, entity that defines what a CAFO is. And it uh, defines them as operations, animal agriculture operations, where animals are confined indoors for at least a certain amount of time each year. And it also sets kind of um, limits on how many animals can be concentrated at a specific facility. Well, I shouldn't say limits because it doesn't limit, you know, the upper cap of how many animals, but it kind of um, puts them into categories of small, medium, and large. So for cows, a small CAFO might have just a couple of hundred of uh, cows, or a large CAFO could be, you know, tens of thousands, as we see, like with the uh, dairy CAFO that supplies Tillamook, for example. For uh, piglets, a small CAFO would have about 3,000 pigs or less. A large CAFO would have 10,000 or more. Um, for turkeys, 55,000 turkeys at one facility would be considered a large facility. But for broiler chickens, 37,000 uh, or less would be considered small. So you can see, you know, the huge range of animal, of numbers of animals that these facilities are allowed to keep. And there really is no upper limit. There's no, there's nothing in place that says you can only keep, you know, this many animals on this much land or whatever it might be. I mean, there are some, well, I guess this answers the second part of your question. There are some, you know, uh, other types of regulations that kind of get at that. But um, these facilities can really just be bigger than you can even imagine. Um, and how are they regulated? <laughs> I would say the short answer or the real answer is that they're not. Um, there are, you know, absolutely laws on the books that have the potential um, and at one point the power to regulate these um, this industry. So like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, which was it, which is a lesser known law that requires um, industries uh, like industrial polluters to notify local communities and local authorities when they have exceeded a certain threshold of emissions that then could be dangerous to surrounding communities. Um, these are all laws that really have the potential to apply to this industry, um, but they have kind of been exempted from each law 
um, in specific ways that, you know, detailing the exemption under each law would, you know, we could restart the whole podcast just talking about that. But um, just to say that the regulators have really been on the side of industry under these laws and are very happy to not regulate them um, basically at any chance that they get. Um, I will say USDA, um, the Department of Agriculture, does kind of nominally regulate the actual animals on these facilities. So obviously the EPA regulates more of the environmental effects. FDA is charged with regulating kind of the overall health of animals on these at these facilities, but that's a very, they interpret that in a very technical way to say they can regulate only um, you know, what kind of drugs the animals are given and things like that, and not really secondary effects. Um, but the USDA does kind of nominally regulate animal treatment at the point of slaughter under the Humane Methods of Standard Act. Um, and at one point, USDA did consider in a very recent past regulating how animals are actually treated on factory farms. But um, that was a, a rule that kind of was poised to go into effect at the end of the Obama administration, I mean, after decades of administrative process. And then once the administration changed, USDA withdrew that rule. Um, so we're, and we're actually litigating over that right now, as well as some of these other uh, exemptions under, under uh, environmental laws. Um, but, you know, similarly, even on the state level, like the state of California not too long ago had kind of a climate change regulatory scheme, and it exempted dairies from those regulations. Um, so we really see kind of at every turn that industry is able to just finagle its way out of um, actually being regulated. Um, and again, you know, nothing, there's no law that regulates the treatment of animals on factory farms. Um, you know, a lot of times even state cruelty laws exempt uh, farmed animals from protection. So they're pretty much uh, that's why ALDF and other organizations really, we have our work cut out for us in terms of trying to achieve legal protections for animals because farmed animals are really left without that for the most part. Um, and I think, you know, in the absence of effective government regulation, we have, you know, ALDF and other organizations and certainly individual citizens and community groups have tried to step up and regulate the industry using um, citizen suit provisions and certain laws like the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, for example, which regulates um, solid and hazardous waste from CAFOs. So we are seeing, you know, we, we do try to use as many tools, legal tools as we can, but generally speaking, from a regulatory perspective, there's really not much <laughs> that CAFOs kind of have to answer for in terms of their practices and their effects. So what are the conditions of the animals in a typical Catho. Yeah, um, really terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, really the hallmark of um, concentrated feeding, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, certainly of a certain size, is uh, really close confinement. So animals are confined indoors in uh, very, you know, unnaturally close conditions. And so, and they're, you know, incredibly stressed out just by virtue of that confinement. Um, they're subjected to really poor air quality within the facility because they're just breathing in the air, you know, from their own uh, waste and, um, you know, byproducts and the litter and things like that. 
Um, disease is really rampant because of overcrowding and the stress, like I said. Um, these animals are, you know, pumped full of drugs. So, you know, hormones, steroids, antibiotics, a lot of which are not actually used to treat true issues in the animals. They're used to help animals process feed more efficiently. So basically they gain more weight or grow faster using less feed, which helps the producer make more money, obviously, uh, make more money, you know, with less money. Um, we also see, you know, horrific instances of systemic cruelty that, you know, different animals are subjected to kind of different forms. And we see this from undercover investigations. You know, cows are, can be forced to, you know, stand on concrete floors in their own manure, you know, covered up to their ankles. They're, you know, plagued by, uh, dairy cows are plagued by mastitis and other diseases. Um, you know, calves are taken from their mothers very shortly, if not immediately after birth, so that they can be raised in the veal industry. Um, uh, broiler chickens, they grow, and those are chickens that are used for meat as opposed to uh, for laying eggs. They grow so large so quickly that their bones, you know, cannot even support their bodies. They're generally left without medical treatment, you know, in these huge kind of warehouses uh, without adequate ventilation, as I mentioned. Egg-laying hens in some states can be kept in battery cages, which are, you know, extremely small cages where they can't really exhibit any of their natural behaviors. They're just you know, barren cages without any kind of... Um, you know, stimulation or um, enrichment activities. They are overcrowded in those cages. They're left in cages with other uh, birds who have died and are rotting. They can cannibalize each other. They, you know, peck at each other. They're just subjected to extreme stress that they take out on each other. And then, of course, for pigs, they're raised um, very often in uh, gestation and farrowing crates, which are extremely cruel and restrictive um, cages that prevent uh, pregnant pigs from even sitting or lying down for the whole course of their pregnancy. And uh, then once they give birth, they are kept on their sides, uh, laying down so that their piglets can come up and nurse, uh, but they can't actually interact at all. Um, and then at slaughter facilities, which obviously, you know, is the end result of, of raising animals on CAFOs, um, there is also horrific treatment. I mean, the processing lines move so quickly that animals are very often, you know, improperly slaughtered or put through different parts of the slaughter process without being properly, you know, stunned or even killed. Um, the government is actually in the process of speeding up those lines uh, at chicken uh, and pig processing facilities or slaughterhouses. Um, and so, you know, we are definitely concerned that the kind of cruelty that takes place. And those facilities is more likely to continue and get worse um, in the future. And then we also know, you know, that abuse and violence are so um, rampant at slaughterhouses and, and is exacerbated by the use of animal drugs that makes animals hyper aggressive um, or that can lead to things like uh, lameness or like downer cows or downer pigs people may have heard of. Um, and so, you know, obviously having animals who are hyper aggressive in an incredibly stressful, high pressure situation for everyone involved um, leads to them, you know, being more likely to be abused. And then if they are, you know, even like dairy cows, for example, are just 
uh, exploited to the point of profound exhaustion and sometimes can't walk themselves to slaughter. And so that's when you see something like Amy was trying to capture in Utah, um, where they are very forcibly moved to slaughter by, you know, chains or high pressure hoses or forklifts and things like that. Um, so <laughs> I know that doesn't paint a very, uh, mm. you know, uh, pretty picture. And of no. course, you know, not uh, every, you know, CAFO of every size has all of those practices, but those are some of the things that we see very regularly uh, and are the systemic problems in the in the CAFO industry. Without proper regulation <laughs> to yeah, um, right. account for it. So <clears throat> I'd like now to discuss how CAFOs negatively impact our environment, including causing dead zones or areas of hypoxia in our oceans there are over 400 of these dead zones in the world. So these are zones with depleted oxygen levels um, due to the phosphorus and nitrogen runoff. Now, um, the largest, I think, is in the Mexican Gulf, uh, measured around the size of New Jersey. What are the uh, environmental impacts, including of dead zones, from cathodes that affect us all? <laughs> Yes, there are so many. <laughs> and like you said, you know, the main uh, contributor to the dead zones are nitrogen and phosphorus, a, a true overabundance, to put it lightly, of those two um, in, in our waterways. And so the reason why that occurs is because of manure management practices on CAFOs. So manure, uh, CAFOs, you know, can find so many animals and raise them in such concentrated areas that dealing with all of the waste that those animals produce, which really like is, is that limit that could just boggle the mind. I mean, some large capos can produce as much waste as huge cities. Um, and so the way that the manure is stored leads to a lot of um, environmental effects. So manure can be stored in like lagoons, which are just open pits, like dug into the ground, um, which are often unlined. They can leak into underground um, you know, aquifers and groundwater sources, as well as run off into surface waters. Um, manure is taken out of those lagoons very often and applied directly to land and to crops by either um, uh, spray methods or injection. But because it's applied at such high rates, the soil can't absorb the amount that's applied. And so there's um, excess runoff of kind of manure-laden wastewater uh, that contaminates surface waters. And then the spray methods um, have the same problem, but in addition, they disperse pollutants into the air, which then can affect, you know, people living nearby or it can settle on waterways and other locations and then contribute to the um, excess nutrient load that you described. Um, and, you know, either type of manure disposal can contaminate drinking water sources uh, with nitrates, pharmaceuticals, even bacteria, such as E. coli. So it really presents a significant problem, especially for people nearby who need to rely on uh, these sources of drinking water that are being polluted. Um, and so nitrates, which are common in agricultural runoff, um, uh, they, very, nitrate pollution is very significant because it can cause severe health problems for people who drink it, um, such as blue baby syndrome, which is something that um, uh, affects infants and decreases the ability of their blood to carry oxygen, which can be fatal. Um, it's also linked to several forms of cancer, autoimmune system dysfunction, and reproductive issues. 
Um, CAFOs also, certain types of CAFOs also use excessive amounts of water. So in the livestock sector, water is used, you know, to irrigate feed crops for the animals, as well as drinking water for the animals, and then also in waste disposal and cleaning slaughter and processing facilities, and then even in, you know, making the animal products themselves. Um, so just to give a few stats here, the average annual water footprint of one dairy cow is over 500,000 gallons of water. In California, which um, has about just under 2 million head of dairy cattle, dairy cows use nearly nine times more water annually than the 4 million residents of Los Angeles County. And almost half of California's annual water footprint of 20 trillion gallons is attributed to meat and dairy. And so obviously, you know, in times of drought and as we face growing water issues with climate change, um, you know, even in addition to pollution, just the sheer amount of water that these facilities are using uh, really has impacts for local residents, but then obviously for all of us nationwide. Right. So we've touched on these issues a little bit, but how do CAFOs negatively impact the public health of the workers that labor in CAFOs as well as the surrounding populations? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of effects to workers, and I would say they're, you know, not only physical, but psychological. So obviously animals um, who are being raised in the conditions, raised and slaughtered in the conditions that I described are, um, you know, subject to a certain degree of mistreatment that workers are often, you know, required to either um, engage in or just witness or not be able to help. And so working at CAFOs and in slaughterhouses takes a huge psychological toll on workers. Um, but physically, they are subjected to, um, you know, they have to inhale the same poor air quality that the animals do. And so they are uh, very often suffer from respiratory illnesses. Um, antibiotic resistance is a huge problem that I will assume all, you know, listeners familiarity with. But uh, CAFO workers actually carry that bacteria home on their bodies and their clothing, and they can transmit it to their, um, to their families and people who they interact with. So antibiotic resistance among CAFO worker communities and neighboring communities um, is really uh, a significant issue. And then, you know, like I mentioned, like drinking water is contaminated, you know, people are not able to recreate or, you know, swim or enjoy just surface water bodies like rivers, you know, that they, that they might like to. There's a lot of nuisance effects. So obviously odors, there's flies, there's even dust and debris from um, trucks coming and going with animals on them or carrying waste off site or, you know, just all of the um, kind of back and forth that an industrial producer requires to run their operation, all of that negatively impacts their um, their health in terms of like dust and just being, uh, you know, it affecting the quality of the air that they breathe. But then they're also, you know, their quality of life. They can't open their windows. They can't hang clothes out to dry. Um, you know, and very often we actually have another lawsuit about this right now they are even deprived of like the public process that would allow them to engage at their community level to oppose new facilities or to ask for the government to place restrictions on these facilities to protect public health. Um, so they very often don't even know when new facilities are going in or, you know, when emergencies or, um, uh, you know, air emissions are exceeding healthy levels, things like that. They're kind of totally 
deprived of information. So they're really hit on all sides. <laughs> That's deplorable. And actually, if we think about where they decide to make the cafes, it's usually in lower income communities as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm, it's, yeah. uh, it's terrible. Well, thank you for taking that case on. So I'm now going to go to a completely different topic, but um, as important, uh, we've been concentrating on one particular animal really during this podcast, which is us humans. But uh, I'd like to discuss the recent um, egregious rollbacks to the Endangered Species Act, the potential impact and the likelihood of success of the recent challenge by 17 states, because Connecticut has also joined now along with California and other states, um, and I believe New York City is a plaintiff too, uh, challenging these rollbacks to the ESA. Yeah, so, right, this is another <laughs> terrible issue that we're facing. Um, so there are kind of two major categories of rollbacks, I would say. There's two sections primarily of the ESA that are being rolled back. So one is section four, one is section seven. So section Four relates to uh, listing and delisting species and designating their critical habitat. So under the previous ESA regulations, decisions about whether a species should be protected, so you know, listed as endangered or threatened, were made solely on the basis of the best available scientific information regarding a species status. And uh, federal agencies specifically could not take into account economics or other impacts. So this is a really key piece of the ESA because it meant that no matter how much money someone would stand to make from a particular development of natural lands, uh, they couldn't do it if it would irreparably harm um, threatened or endangered species. So that's a, it was a really powerful tool and determinations about whether a species should be listed were driven just by scientific analysis of, you know, the health and uh, potential longevity of the species. The revised rule removes that phrase that says decisions have to be made without reference to possible economic or other impacts. So basically now the government can consider whether the decision to list a species as threatened or endangered will negatively impact, you know, corporate profits um, and can kind of balance economics against the health of a species. Um, also species who were listed as threatened under the previous regulations were automatically given blanket protection um, until, unless or until the Fish and Wildlife Service could issue species-specific regulations that pertain just to that species. So it's kind of like as soon as a, as a species was uh, designated as threatened, it was entitled to default protections until the Fish and Wildlife Service took further action. And Fish and Wildlife Service historically has been very slow. <laughs> if, if it acts at all, it acts extremely slowly to issue species-specific regulations. So these default protections are incredibly important for um, you know, maintaining the health of a species um, kind of it, it, until the Fish and Wildlife Service takes uh, further action. So these were really important. And that is one of the provisions that has been rolled back with the new regulations. So now once a, a species is listed as threatened, it has no protection until Fish and Wildlife Service acts, which means they're basically, you know, they could go extinct before Fish and Wildlife Service even takes actions, excuse me, to protect them. Um, 
The government now can also decline to designate a critical habitat if the threats to that habitat are ones that the agency can't address under its authority. So that basically says if habitat is deteriorating because of something like climate change, then it's outside of Fish and Wildlife Service's power, so they don't need to do anything about it. Um, and then kind of similarly, yeah, um, when deciding whether or not a species is uh, threatened or should be uh, listed as threatened or endangered, the government considers whether the animal is likely to become, oh, I'm sorry, when deciding whether a species is threatened, the government considers whether the animal is likely to become endangered within, quote, the foreseeable future. So that still remains, but under the new rule, foreseeable future is limited to, quote, only so far into the future as the services can reasonably determine that both the future threats and the species' responses to those threats are likely, which, again, uh, is signaling, you know, climate change and saying that basically the longer-term impacts of climate change are unknown to a certain degree, and so the government does not have to factor any of that into decision-making. Uh, you know, if it can't predict that an event will occur uh, in the future, then it doesn't have to account for it, basically. So those are all the changes that affect threatened animals. And then just quickly under Section 7, which is the section that requires federal action agencies or agencies that are taking major federal actions to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Marine Fisheries Service, um, it rolled back those provisions too. So ongoing federal actions are no longer subjected to an ongoing consultation requirement. Um, again, the, the effects that need to be considered are only those actually within like the purview of Fish and Wildlife or the National Marine Fishery Service. So climate change doesn't really need to be considered. Um, that they can ignore harm that are caused by federal actions if those harms are manifested through, quote, global processes, also meaning climate change. Um, there's no mitigation measures are required. Um, and yeah, they have to move very quickly. They have to complete consult informal consultations within a 60-day timeline, which is incredibly aggressive <laughs> for, for yeah. government action. So yeah, the government is very hamstrung. What is your opinion of the likelihood of uh, success in challenging these rollbacks? And what are the main contentions in the challenge? I think the likelihood of success is very high. I think the government has really acted in a way that's contrary to what the Endangered Species Act requires of it. Um, and I think that the process that they went through was really not uh, does not comply with like the Administrative Procedure Act, for example, which requires agencies to really thoroughly consider public comments on any government proposal and to make sure that they're addressing any concerns that are raised by the public. Um, and that really did not happen here. So I am very optimistic about the success of the suit. Well, that is good to hear. I hope so. <laughs> we, we have... Um... We have the suit locally here in uh, the federal court in the Northern District in San Francisco, and um, there are a lot of incoming plaintiffs, and I, I think that more will join, more states and cities will join because it is so egregious. And just like you said, it's the they kind of flip the Endangered Species Act on its head. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, so 
hopefully we will um, challenge that and um, and hopefully the cases that you have in, with humane washing and the food censorship laws, the ag-gag laws, and um, <laughs> with respect to uh, people that live near cathodes and that do not have any ability to challenge that and the, um, the deregulation of well, in effect, the deregulation of their air quality, right? <laughs> as soon as a mm -hmm. cafe goes in, um, I really hope that um, we can challenge these and thank you for working on such important matters. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all this. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.